Good morning. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 41 can be found on page 939 of the Bibles next to your seats. It'll also be on the screen. This is God's word. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. The Word of the Lord. God of grace, as we come into this room, we come from all different kinds of places, experiences this week, different backgrounds, different perspectives, different places on the spiritual spectrum whether we come with um, anguish and sorrow or whether we come with joy and thanksgiving or anywhere in between. May you help us to know that we're all in the same boat. We're all more of a mess than we care to admit. We're all more broken than we want other people to know. Our lives fragmented and frail. And that you move towards broken people. The stories of your word, of scripture, show us a picture of a father sending a son to rescue more children and to bring them home. And as wayward children, we come to you today seeking your grace. Teach us through that grace that you willingly give. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you, I'm a little loud up here, I don't know if we can... I don't know if I'm just self-conscious about it, but it's really echoey. There you go. That's better. Pardon? Yeah. I could just remove the microphone, but then all those thousands of podcast listeners would be um, upset this week. Um, have you ever? Have you ever been driving and started to get groggy and sleepy? How many of you have been sleepy at the wheel? All right, that's good. That's good honesty. How many of you have ever pulled off to like a rest stop or something or an exit to take a little nap? Another show of hands. How many of you have just kind of kept driving, white knuckled? Very good. Thank you for your honesty. That's about right. I was looking at some surveys and some statistics and I was, I was going to, you know, I was going to call you to the, to the mat here if you were lying to me today and if nobody raised their hand on that one. So um, coming back from the church camping trip, the City Life camping trip about a month ago, uh, my wife and I realized that we, we switched drivers, but then we were both too tired to drive, 
we had our four tired, rambunctious, wiry kids strapped in the, in the minivan. So we pulled off to one of these stops and, and did that little, we don't do that very often, but we, we, we tried to both take a nap and then we kind of got back going and it was okay. Um, but that did go about as well as you would think it would go, trying to, two parents trying to take a nap with four kids behind them, rambunctious and strapped in. Worked well enough, but we get the point. We get the picture. We know that there's something, being sleepy and groggy and drowsy at the wrong time can be dangerous in all kinds of different ways. You can get in trouble. You can get in trouble on the job, but you can get in trouble, um, you know, a, a light rail driver in Boston got in trouble because he was asleep, you know, as he's, he's the driver of this commuter train going through the city. We, we get a sense of the danger, right? Today we're going to explore, coming out of this story of Scripture, the idea that what if there's something about a spiritual drowsiness that works uh, the same way? That there might be sort of a, a sort of danger to that, that if we really stop and examine it. Is there such a thing as a spiritual drowsiness? I, this passage definitely says that there is, and in my own experience of how this works, unfortunately what tends to happen is we tend to wake up after the trouble has already happened, after you know, the crash has already happened and we're in the, the aftermath of where our spiritual drowsiness has gotten us. And so today, really look at it this way. It's a chance to maybe midstream in spiritual drowsiness to, to learn a few things, to examine a few things, and to try to, in a sense, wake up. As we look at Jesus in this story, the Gospel of Mark is being written to uh, a culture of Christianity where basically to be in a church, to be a Christian, to associate yourself with Jesus had high risks because people were being persecuted and they were suffering just for the very fact that they believed in Jesus. So there's a lot of uh, distress personally in people's lives. And in this story, as Mark The gospel writer Mark is writing to that kind of setting. He's writing the gospel tailored for a certain kind of people. He shows us in this story, he shows Jesus in his great moment of sorrow and distress. He's overwhelmed. And as he shows us that, he also gives us, basically he lays it out for the people in the first century of Christianity and for us today. He lays out some really helpful keys to being spiritually alert. Let's see if we can learn from them. And they go like this. First, to value this moment. Second, to pray correctly. And third, to never lose sight of the hour. Okay, so value this moment, pray correctly, and never lose sight of the hour. First of all, value this moment. I'm often struck with this in my own life and other people's lives who are my friends or family, people I run into through church. I'm often struck with the idea that so much of the time we're not satisfied with now. We're not really, um, we're not, we don't have a curiosity about what the importance of this moment might be. And, um, and so the idea that you know, this moment that you're in right now might be a critical one in your development or a formative time in your life. We're usually thinking about the next thing. We're usually thinking we're too busy right now or we've got this going on or life isn't quite how I was hoping it would be and I'm looking for it to kind of all come together in a different way coming up. The disciples definitely have that going on, don't they? You see how in this story, in this moment, 
This moment means very little to them, and they're, they're falling asleep, we're told repeatedly. Jesus has asked them three times. The word is used three times in this story for um, keep watch or stay awake. It's the same word that, that we get the name Gregory out of. So it's Gregorius, stay awake. Gregory means watchful one. So, so be awake, be awake. Three times it's mentioned, and then three times it's mentioned, they're asleep, they're asleep, they're asleep. They don't realize the importance of the moment. Really, there is two different views of the moment. For them, this is just another night. How are the disciples viewing it? Just another night. They've, they've had a long day, perhaps. They've had a long week, perhaps. They've been following Jesus into all kinds of adventures. This one seems pretty tame. They're all alone in this garden place outside the city of Jerusalem. All the crowds of the festival of Jerusalem are, are gone for the day. All the busy things that they've been up to around the temple and within this important city for their faith is all kind of done. It's an evening. It's late. What's the big deal? It's just another night. And then what do we know? What do, the, what do those disciples later on see about this night? What do they end up writing later on about what's happening in this night? Well, this is the night when the God of the universe is about to, is about to be given over and stand in for all of humanity. And this God is about to give direct access to all kinds of people through what he's about to do. That's what they come to believe about this moment. And what are they doing in the middle of the moment? They're just kind of falling asleep. And we, we're very much the same way, and our lives have a lot of this in it, where we're, we're just kind of missing the moment. We're missing what the potential of the moment, what's happening in the moment. I would say that a lot of it comes down to there's, there's unintentional habits that create a grogginess, right? A, sort of a life, sort of a spiritual grogginess. Unintentional habits. Can you think of any general ones in today's world? Say them out loud if you think of one. Anything that you think of, this is something that just sort of lulls us to sleep in life, uh, keeps us sort of spiritually drowsy. Facebook. Facebook, nice. iPhone, yeah. Yeah, thank you guys for naming all of my things, like right in a row. That was good. Yeah. And here's the other side of it, is that there's also the potential for, although we mostly find ourselves not accessing this, there's the potential for putting intentional habits into our life that promote alertness. Another time in Scripture, when someone else is writing to, to very struggling, persecuted Christians, in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter, uh, chapter 4, Verse 6, we read this. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Is there, is there perhaps a sort of spiritual sobriety? Sometimes it's both. I've mentioned several times over the years, uh, a key moment in my spiritual life was where those, those two kind of spiritual sobriety and, and like physical sobriety kind of came together. And it really did follow the same kind of pattern, unintentional habits, intentional habits. Where when I was going through a time that was really distressful, really difficult, really um, with a lot of perceived burdens or, or you know, perceived or real, and I realized that that right little dose of alcohol every night was something that was starting to be every night and there wasn't a night I could remember when I didn't have it. 
And then it came to be the season of Lent where you often pick a practice and uh, something to give up. And I, I didn't really want to, but I kind of had this conviction to give that up. And it was very difficult. And in its place, um, I felt moved to have sort of a prayer routine um, in the place of wanting a drink. The, the drink was just something to sort of like numb my mind to the reality, to sort of just make me drowsy and not alert to the, this really difficult time and what God was doing in it. So getting rid of it um, immediately produces sort of alertness. And that time in my life continues to be, as far as I've lived so far, the most transformative time in terms of God revealing his grace, his power, what he means for my life. It's spiritual alertness, spiritual sobriety. If you had to, you know, if you're a note taker and you've got one of those pens and those lines, you might put blank is creating spiritual grogginess and blank might create spiritual alertness. Think about that for yourself and fill in those blanks. Blank is creating spiritual grogginess. Blank might create spiritual alertness. You know, make it, make it concrete. Make it personal today. The hope, of course, is to cultivate a suspicion that in this time in your life right now, God is actually ready to work, ready to transform, ready to bring radical new awareness of who he is. So value this moment, but also pray correctly. Now, I, um, you know, all attempts to authentically address God, I mean, I say pray correctly. I would say all attempts to sincerely um, address God are okay in my book. But if you, if you pay close attention, attention to Jesus and really kind of peel back the layers of how he prays and pay, just really look at it, you're bound to have a deepened understanding of prayer and for your understanding to grow. So let's look at a couple things that happen, a few things that happen in Jesus' prayer. If you look at the passage, there's uh, this verse four, 36 where we get just this very simple prayer. It's just a few lines. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Let's just look at that backwards, starting from the back and moving towards the front of that prayer, and we see three things. First of all, that prayer is not about getting what you want. That's going to that's gonna bum some of you out. Right? Prayer, <laughs> prayer is not about getting what you want. And we see it in this phrase, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see Jesus asking for what he wants. Um, Take this cup from me. Take this suffering that I'm about to undergo that I know is a part of your plan. Take it from me, but not what I will, but what you will. It's as as if uh, to pray uh, the way Jesus prays is to, on the one hand, ask for the best you can ask out of this situation, to ask for what you want, what you're seeing seems to be the path you'd like to see happen. And as as, as you're saying it, as you're asking that, you're already suspicious of the fact that God might have a greater course than what your mind can even imagine to happen out of this. That you might not get what you want and that what might happen is totally not what you'd predict or what you'd even ask for or what you'd even want, but the outcome of that, there's sort of, an, uh, sort of this already, this, you're cultivating this suspicion that there very well could be this other way that this is going to go, and I'll be thankful that it went that way. 
instead of God answering the thing that I asked for. So first of all, prayer is not about getting, getting what you want. Also, God can do all things. Look at this in verse, um, verse 36 again. Everything is possible for you. Everything is possible for you. You just think about your own life. When's the last time that you threw that principle out the window? <laughs> When's the last time that you went kind of astray from, from that principle in your life? Probably, if you're honest, not that long ago. There's a sense in which a lot of times we come to forks in the road or decision points or times where we want you know, certain doors to open. And quite frankly, we just take the matter into our own hands. We take the reins. We can't even risk that maybe God uh, can't handle it. Jesus comes at prayer saying, everything is possible for you. We often end up robbing God of even the chance to show us that he can handle things because we're so quick to try to make it happen ourselves the way we want to. It might be a way of living, or it might be verbalized in prayer as well. But you still need a little bit more. You need another principle, because if you think about it, saying all things are possible with God still leaves some of us hanging, because you might be saying, okay, all things are possible with you, but how do I, how do, if that's really true, how do I know you're not going to use that power to zap me, right? How do I know you're not going to be mad at me? How do I know, oh, you're all powerful, great. What is that going to mean for me? Is that power going to be good or bad for me? All right, so we go on to the third principle, which is this. Know accurately who you are in God's presence. Jesus says, Abba, Father. It's a very deep theological concept. And it roots his prayer. Who is he as he prays with respect to God? And we're led into this ancient uh, language that Jesus spoke. It's Aramaic. And for whatever reason, these early uh, storytellers of Jesus' life, as they passed it on and as they eventually wrote it down, they kept a few points of Aramaic. They kept it in the stories because of the value, because it communicated something that they couldn't cross over into the Greek language that they eventually wrote this down in. And Abba is one of those. It's the tender, I mean, when you hear this, you're led into the tenderness of the parent-child relationship. Daddy. Daddy. And with that comes um, sort of, you know, all the things that you can picture of the best of a daddy-child relationship. The safety, the trust, and this, um, this deep concern for the welfare of anyone saying those words. Daddy. I have three kids who say that. I have a fourth who's not yet saying that. Sometimes I think he's saying it. I'm pretty sure he says it, my 11-month-old. But I have three kids who say, Daddy. I'm not going to have anyone else in the world really call, call that out to me in that same way. Daddy, Daddy. And when I hear it, I always, unless I'm on Facebook or my iPhone, <laughs> I, I always turn and look to provide, look to, with concern, to be there for them. Or maybe if I'm at a Kings game, maybe that's also another tough one where I might not quite hear it. Daddy, do you think of God that way? Do you come, do you come to prayer with that level of relationship with God? Daddy. 
And not only that you can say that and kind of hope it's true, but, al- but almost more so that that's the reality with which God comes to you. Whenever he hears you just saying, God, help me, that he hears that as, Daddy. Do you believe that? Do you come to prayer that way with that sort of confidence in the relationship? Well, people who believe in Jesus, people who become Christians, basically were taught from Scripture that that is how now we come to God because of what Jesus has done. In Romans chapter 8, we're, we're told about, uh, in, in verse 15 and 16, we're told about how the Holy Spirit, because of what Jesus has done, ushers us into this adoption with God. And because of that adoption, all of us should be calling out, crying out to God, Abba, Father, Daddy. And guess what? The little sneaky trick of the writer of Romans 8 is that he took those, that exact phrase from Jesus and now puts it on all of our lips. What? That's Somehow there's a transfer of that relationship to us? Yes. That's something to ponder today. That the Christian faith stands out in terms of all faith outlooks, all perspective, all religions, in telling you that the God of the universe went, out, went to extreme lengths, went to, went to great lengths, in order to bring you into the safety and the tenderness of, being, of him being daddy to you. And of course, the extreme lengths that he went to are what Jesus does right after the story that we're reading today, when he's captured and when his past takes him to the cross. It's to let you into the relationship of daddy. So let's look at that. This last, this last um, key to be spiritually alert. We had valuing this moment, praying correctly, and then never losing sight of the hour. The hour, of course, is uh, it's mentioned three times in this um, in this passage, and it's a loaded term. In uh, in the Gospel of John, you see this especially well. Not as much in the Gospel of Mark, but in the Gospel of John, basically you can you can outline the whole gospel where it's punctuated with references to the hour and whether the hour has come or whether it hasn't come. And it's all driving towards the final redemptive action of Jesus for all of humanity. So Jesus, so in three times in our passage today, we we see that word, that key word, the hour. And two of them, for sure, are pointing to what's about to happen, what Jesus is about to go through. Jesus has, Jesus, as he's going through his darkest hour, he never loses sight of the hour. And the same should be true of you. Never lose sight of the hour. Because what Jesus does in his hour of distress at the end of the Gospel of Mark here, what he goes through, his hour of distress radically transforms your hour of distress. You might have times in life, maybe you're in one of these times right now, you have times where um, friends abandon you, they aren't there for you, they don't maybe notice what you're going through, they don't notice your sorrow, or they abandon you. But you'll never have what Jesus experiences in his hour. As bad as that will be, Jesus had all of that in his hour that he's about to go through. Everyone left him. 
He's left all alone. But it goes much, much deeper. His hour cuts much, much deeper. Because Abba, Father, wasn't there for him. He called out, Daddy. And he didn't get a reply. What, what Daddy does in the hour of Jesus is he temporarily lets go of the favored, perfect firstborn child as a way of permanently becoming daddy to streams and streams of runaway children. He temporarily lets go, temporarily lets go of the perfect child who's calling out to him so that he can forever permanently answer you the runaway child who's come home. Have you come home? Do you know what he's done for you to bring you home and to guarantee the kind of relationship that you'll have? Never lose sight of the hour. This is the key. This is the center of, the, of the, any of the energy and strength and love that will flow out of your life spiritually. The Christian always looks back to what is this thing that God did on my behalf to bring me home? Whether it's, it's new to you and you haven't quite really assessed what it is or figured out what it means for you personally, don't lose sight of the hour. Look to it. Figure it out. What, what was happening here and what does it have to do with you as Jesus goes to the cross? Examine it for the first time or maybe for the 1,000th first time. Keep going, never lose sight of the hour. Keep going back to it over and over again. Because the hour accomplishes your relationship with God. And it guarantees your safety in God's arms. And it's what's going to keep you alert to what God's doing all around us in this world. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we need so much help um, as so many things like Facebook and iPhones and you know, binge watching of The Wire or other shows, they keep, us, they keep us groggy and drowsy. Will you um, help us in the ways that we can't help ourselves to draw us away and alert us to what you are doing around us? Will you help us to look at the hour, especially as we go to the table of communion now in the service? Use that celebration of of your dark hour to wake us up once again to your grace for our lives and for this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.